0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Screen Speak, the podcast that is all about movies, life, and so much more. My name's Jordan Anderson. This is my podcast, and as always, I'm very appreciative of each of you for coming by and giving it a listen. If this is your first time on the podcast, you've never been here before, well, guess what I'm going to ask you to do. It's probably unsurprising if you've ever listened to any podcast literally on the planet Earth. Hit the follow button. Can you please do that? Hit the follow button. Oh, my God. He's asking to hit the follow button. Yep. Yep. I did it. Can you believe it? A content creator is wanting you to listen to his content. Oh, my God. Who would have thought? Um, (laughs) Now, but seriously. Seriously, do hit that follow button if you are new to the podcast, if you've never been here, go ahead and hit the follow button. It takes like two seconds, and then you'll be in the loop. You'll be in the loop anytime new episodes drop, and you'll be among the first to listen. So definitely, definitely do that. Also, if you think that you can just be an existing listener here and skate by without hitting the follow button, and you you don't think I'm going to notice it, think again. I somehow have super mind-reading powers, and I know each and every one of you out there that is listening and hasn't hit that follow button yet. I'm on to you. I'm on to you. And I'm telling you right now, if you don't frickin' hit that goddamn follow button. <laughs> I I'm I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not the threatening type. That's not who I am. It's not what the show is about. I, I want you to do it of your own accord. Okay? So just go ahead and do it when the time feels right. How about that? Okay. <laughs> okay, let, let, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and get into it. Let's just let's just get into it, okay? I am here to talk all about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer in-depth on this latest episode of Screen Speak, and I'm going to do that here in just a hot second. I promise you I will, but I do feel like I got a couple of life updates that are worth throwing out in the introduction of this episode before getting into stuff that I feel like you should know. So first, there has not been an episode up since July 28th, and I, I do have a good excuse for that. It's called My Health call my health a little thing that does matter to, to each of us. Uh, of course to you, you can't feel my health, but you know, for me, uh, I live with it. So it, it, it's something that I, I definitely felt over the past week or so in the form of allergies, allergy. Hell is what I would call last week. Okay. No joke. It was terrible. Um, I, I, I don't know if it was just like a God awful head cold, um, I really don't think it was COVID because I had COVID before and it didn't feel anything like that. It just felt like my allergies were just absolutely kicking my ass. And because of that, I had super bad nasal congestion. I sounded like shit. And look, the, 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 the truth of the matter is, is I refuse to deliver shitty content to you. I do. Okay. I mean, you know, call me a, a realist or call that blunt to hear, but it's, it's the truth. I do not want to ever put out half-assed content to you if I have something to say about it. So I just, I won't do it, okay? And so, yeah, that meant that in the last week or so, I didn't really have any content that I was able to produce because my voice is sort of the, the main driving force behind this thing. And if I sound, if I sound like I can barely breathe, <laughs> uh, that is clearly a dramatic representation of how I sounded. It was nowhere near that. But believe me, um, even if you, you know, even if you have felt it or you, you couldn't hear it, I felt it, you know, I'm the one that's recording this stuff. So it was definitely prevalent. So I just had to take a pause while I got my... Sinus is back under control and now they are under control and we can continue along with life, continue delivering you all screen speak content. That's what you want. It's what you're here for. So that's what I'm going to make happen for you right now. All right. So that's it as far as health updates go. But now I have some other more podcast related updates to share with you all. First, I am excited to share with you all that I have officially. It's in the can. It's in the can. It's done. I just got to get it out to you all. I have shot the very first video episode of Screenspeak. That's right. Video is coming to Screenspeak at least for one episode, okay? I can't promise long-term that there's going to be video because I just don't know what the future holds on that. I can certainly tell you that video is something that I've been wanting to try in some way to deliver to you all on the podcast on a regular basis. Um, But right now, I don't fully know... If it's in the cards at least on a regular basis okay but i can tell you this very first video episode i am very proud of it um i'm excited to have you all see it and there's a couple surprises in there and just kind of where it's shot at that i don't want to spoil just yet uh, i want to be very properly prepared by the time it gets out to you all so definitely definitely be on the lookout for that and that means you can see my face you can see my face and hear my voice as you're accustomed to if you're sticking around here for episode 90 of this show. So video, at least for one episode, hopefully more, is coming to speaks, So definitely be on the lookout for that very, very soon. Um, the other exciting update and the last update I have, and then I swear to you, we're getting into it is I am going to be attending yet another film festival here in Iowa here this fall. At least I think September is in the fall. So let me drop this announcement right now. September 7th, 8th, and 9th, I will be in Mason City and Clear Lake, Iowa attending the, I think it's 16th or 17th annual, I could be mistaken, Iowa Film Festival. So it is the film festival for the entire state of Iowa. It is again in Mason City and Clear Lake, Iowa on September 7th, 8th, and 9th. If you had listened in the past to when I was doing coverage of the Cedar Rapids Independent Film Festival, I will be on site at the Iowa Film Festival there doing similar things to what I did at CRIF, albeit some details are still pending and I'm working things out. Um, But I'm going to be doing coverage of the festival there and talking, hopefully, with a lot of different filmmakers. Uh, people that are passion uh, passionate about film, and, and just people that really have a love for this as much as I do. I, I, I really can't wait. Um, like I said, though, there are some details that are still pending, uh, so more to come on that, but I'm using this episode right now to announce that I will be at the Iowa Independent Film Festival here in Iowa in Mason City in Clear Lake, Iowa, September 7th, 8th, and 9th. So if you're a fan of the show, you want to come out and see me, Definitely, definitely go ahead and do that, or at the very least, come up and check out the film festival yourself, because local film fests like this always need love and support, so definitely, definitely make that happen if you don't have any plans during that time. Okay, Um, I think I've talked enough on this. You're ready, I'm ready. Let's go ahead and get into me going in-depth and crazy, hopefully not too crazy, about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Let's do it. We're at war. Didn't need a charge. There's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world. We're in a race against the Nazis. I have no choice. Is it big enough to end the war? To end the war. one. All right, so assuming that you've never heard of Christopher Nolan, you've never heard of this big movie, It's it's been out for a little while, you've never heard of the all-star cast, I'm going to assume that you have heard about this movie, uh, especially since I just played some of the trailer for you, so you're, you're definitely brought up to speed on it now. But in any case, let me go ahead and read the synopsis for you right now. So the official synopsis for this movie says, During World War II, Lieutenant General Leslie Groves Jr., that's Matt Damon, he appoints physicist J Robert Oppenheimer silly or Killian Murphy. I always say Cillian, it's Killian Murphy to work on the top secret Manhattan project Oppenheimer and a team of scientists spend years developing and designing the atomic bomb and their work comes to full through uh, fru- it. That's a tongue twister on July 16th, 1945 as they witness the world's first nuclear explosion forever changing the course of human history. Um, if that sounds epic just from the reading of that, it's because it is. Chris Nolan absolutely took what could have been, I would say, just your kind of standard conventional historical biopic and made it into something more. He did what he does, I think, best. And I can't say many filmmakers really follow his, his model for this, but he, he's just the type of filmmaker that anytime a movie of his comes out, it's not just a movie, it's an event. A Chris Nolan movie coming out is absolutely an event. It is an experience. It is something that you need to see on the largest frickin' screen possible. It, it demands it. And, and this movie is is absolutely no different, not just because it has a, an atomic bomb, as you might expect, but because of the just weight and, and sheer scope of this movie and all the existential questions that it asks and challenges the audience with. All of that can be felt in every single frame of this movie. Oh, and uh, in case you haven't figured it out, I love this movie. So I'm probably going to be gushing about it here for a while and also getting more insightful into the mix of things. So let's just let's just see where this goes. Um, so Oppenheimer, if you're not familiar with the movie, want a little background history on it. It is based on the uh, Pulitzer, I think that's how you say it, Pulitzer prize-winning novel, The American Prometheus, that's written by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. A um, little bit about the the Pulitzer Prize and this book. I just thought I would read a little bit about this just in case anybody out there is is curious. <clears throat> so the book's full title is American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And again, it's by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. So the story of the book goes like this. American Prometheus is the first full-scale biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, father of the atomic bomb, the brilliant, charismatic physicist who led the effort to capture the awesome fire of the sun for his country in time of war. Immediately after Hiroshima, he became the most famous scientist of his generation, one of the iconic figures of the 20th century, the embodiment of a modern man confronting the consequences of scientific progress. He was the author of a radical proposal to place international controls over atomic materials, an idea that is still relevant today. He opposed the development of the hydrogen bomb and criticized the Air Force's plans to fight an indefinitely dangerous nuclear war. In the now almost forgotten hysteria of the early 1950s, his ideas were, oh geez, my my bad vocabulary is coming out, anathema, anathema, God, I'm an idiot, uh, two powerful advocates of a massive nuclear buildup. And in response, Atomic Energy Commission Chairman Louis Strauss, who in the movie is portrayed by Robert Downey Jr., Superbomb Advocate Edward Teller and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, worked behind the scenes to have a hearing board find that Oppenheimer could not be trusted with America's nuclear secrets. American Prometheus sets forth Oppenheimer's life and times in revealing and unprecedented detail. Exhaustively researched, it is based on thousands of records and letters gathered from archives in America and abroad on massive FBI files and on close to a 100 interviews with Oppenheimer's close friends, relatives, and colleagues. The book follows him from his earliest education at the Book of the 20th Century at New York City's Ethical Culture School through personal crises at Harvard and Cambridge Universities, then to Germany where he studied quantum physics with the world's most accomplished theorists, and to Berkeley, California, where he established during the 1930s the leading American school of theoretical physics and where he became deeply involved with social justice causes and their advocates, many of whom were... Commies. They're communists. Then to Los Alamos, New Mexico, where he transformed a bleak Mesa into the world's most potent nuclear weapons laboratory and where he himself was transformed. And finally to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, which he directed from 1947 all the way to 1966. The book is a rich evocation of America at mid-century, a new and compelling portrait of a brilliant, ambitious, complex, and flawed man profoundly connected to its major events, the Depression, World War II, and the Cold War. It is at once biography and history and essential to our understanding of our recent past and of our choices for the future. That is all from the book jacket of American Prometheus. So... I felt the need to just quite literally read all of that because this movie, even after hearing all of it and seeing the movie, which again, if you're listening to this episode, I'm assuming you've seen this movie, it encapsulates so much of the things that I just said out of the synopsis. I mean, I really think it does. I didn't read the book. Um, I would love to say, sure, I'll get around to reading it, but... In reality, I I, I don't think it's on my top of the priority list to do, especially when the movie itself was three hours long and that itself, I'm not saying that that's like a long time for me, for me personally. If a movie's good, I can watch it for eight hours. I don't give a shit. Just give me the good content. But I understand the average audience viewer, that's kind of a long ask uh, to have of them. But in any case, um, I'm told that this is from a good book. Now, I did feel the need looking into this book, seeing that it won the coveted Pulitzer Prize. What the hell is so prestigious about this award? I mean, I've heard the award before, and I'm sure those listening have probably heard of it, but how many out there actually know a ton about this award and could really speak to it clearly? Now, I... I'm telling you right now, if I hadn't done research on this, I I probably couldn't do it. But I did some research, so let me go ahead and spit some facts at you and let me know what you think. The Pulitzer Prize is prestigious due, I would say, primarily due to its historical significance. It was established in 1917 by a gentleman of the name Joseph Pulitzer, who is a famous newspaper publisher at the time. And the award itself goes towards recognizing excellence in the categories of journalism, literature, as well as musical composition. I may be missing a few other subcategories in there, but that is the general gist of what that award recognizes. Um, Other reasons why it's so prestigious is that apparently it has a very rigorous selection process that is made up of an expert panel of juries and committees that take their time, and they're very thorough, I guess, about reviewing all the submissions that do come into it. The award has also had a lot of influence on culture and society. Uh, Typical people that have been awarded the prize have been people that are addressing, uh, largely speaking, important issues of our time or have had work that overall influences the mass population that we have. And because also of where it's originated from, being Columbia University, there is a lot of credibility and integrity that is tied into this award. So, In the literary world, if you get this award, I mean, it is like the Oscars, if not even more important than that in the book world. So it's a really big deal for a book to get that honor. And so I was very excited, very excited to see what Chris Nolan was going to do with this take um, of this very famous historical figure based on this very, very highly regarded book um, from the academic community. And I don't have an academia person here in front of me, but I expect that many of them would probably say Christopher Nolan did the job right in this movie. I would say, not that I'm, you know, pitting Chris Nolan's movies against one another, but this is probably like at least in the top five. I think he's made like 11, 12, 13 films somewhere around that right now. This is a top five absolutely for sure, like without question. Maybe even if you push me against the wall, you could get me to say top three, but it's definitely a top five Nolan without question. It is a movie that I absolutely wanted to rewatch upon getting out of it because this movie is so utterly dense and in the best way possible where it's not just like fluffy dense, it actually has um, dense narrative and language and and stories that are being told throughout this very complex film that it begs a reviewing because of all the pieces that you can miss upon first viewing. So really to me, if you're a filmmaker and you make a movie that I want to see more than once to catch what I didn't get the first time, it's damn near the highest praise you could get from me because it means not only did your movie leave an impression with me, it made me want to go back for more. It's making me want to talk about it. And it's... Quite literally, leaving a blasting impression in my head. I don't know if that was the most subtle pun in the world, but uh, yeah, this this movie leaves a mark. Oh shit, I did it again. <laughs> mark bomb, pff, you, you get it. Um, also felt it was worth noting on here what exactly Prometheus means. What the heck does that mean? So <clears throat> Prometheus, the the figure himself. If you're not familiar with it, it is a figure of ancient Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, Prometheus was considered a Titan. He was the most famous, excuse me, his most famous act was for stealing fire from the gods and giving it to us, humanity. It was considered an act of defiance by the gods against the divine order that they had, and it was meant to empower humans and and elevate their civilization by giving them the ability and means to harness fire for cooking, warmth, uh, crafting tools, etc., etc. And in the context of Greek mythology, it symbolizes a lot of things to do with uh, knowledge, uh, technology, and overall human progress. However, again, Prometheus, in Greek mythology, he stole the fire, okay? He stole that fire and pissed off Zeus. Zeus, we've seen Zeus in movies, right? We've seen him in the books. He's got a big beard, big bowl of lightning. We would not want to piss him off. So Zeus sought to punish him very severely for doing this. As a consequence, Zeus had Prometheus bound to a rock where each day an eagle comes to eat his liver, which would regenerate overnight due to his immortality. And basically it just repeats eternally to the end of time, um, this punishment over and over again. So it's really, really gruesome stuff. Um, though, I guess in Greek mythology, I think eventually Prometheus gets freed by, um, uh, Hercules. Her- her- Kale- her- it's not Hercules. I think it's Hercules in Roman mythology, but in Greek mythology, it's her, her, oh my God, I'm a dumbass. <laughs> uh, her Heracles. Heracles. Her- <laughs> um, somebody that is a scholar on this, please, please school my ass on this because I clearly need it. Um, he had a labor at some point, and he was supposed to do that. So he went ahead and freed Prometheus. Now, in Greek mythology, Prometheus gets revered, I guess, for his wily uh, and cunning nature, I suppose, and he is often seen as a symbol of human striving, quest for knowledge, and the pursuit of progress against all odds. He is by and large considered to be a benefactor of humanity, having given them a precious gift that allowed them to thrive and develop their civilizations. Now, I think if we're looking at this movie, Prometheus and tying into Oppenheimer, that's most apparent where you're giving humanity essentially the means of fire or the means to destroy themselves. Now, fire might be a lot different than an atomic explosion, but I, I definitely get where the comparison is there. So thought I would just share some of that Prometheus knowledge there because I do think it's worth mentioning on that. Um, but that is the origin of the name, Prometheus. <clears throat> Now, let me go ahead and get deeper, a lot deeper into this movie. This movie is told in a non-linear fashion. Now, if you're not familiar with what non-linear storytelling is, it's essentially a special narrative technique in which events are presented outside of chronological order, meaning that things do not happen in order of the movie. Now, this can be somewhat subjective to people in that if this is not done very technically proficiently and smartly on the part of the filmmaker and the cast, especially the editing, I might add you for this. Nonlinear storytelling has been known to be very confusing if it's done poorly. However, however, if it is done correctly, if it is done with care and attentiveness and detail, it can really, I think, make the audience work harder to piece the story together and ultimately be more engaged. In, in the breadth of the story. So that's where I think nonlinear storytelling works best. And personally, I actually really liked that they did it for this because otherwise I think it could have felt a little cliche where it's like, okay, act one, we have him becoming Robert Oppenheimer, the genius physicist. And act two, okay, we got the bomb. And act three, we have the aftermath. I think by splicing the timelines together and cutting it as smartly as... Christopher Nolan did it allowed the movie to have a greater sense of its stakes. And I think it also helped to go towards the themes in the movie, which is that, you know, these pivotal actions in our lives can have huge, huge ripple effects um, that both go forward in time and also backwards in time as well. And so I definitely think it was the appropriate move for this to do nonlinear storytelling. uh, And I definitely think it works. I would also say just again, from the audience level on this, that it adds a certain surprise for you as the viewer because you don't really know exactly what's gonna come next. So it definitely demands your attention. This is definitely not a movie that you could just casually, passively watch on the couch and you know just watch 20 minutes here, 20 minutes there. It's definitely one that asks you to lock in your attention full speed right from the get-go, um, right at the bat. So it, it asks you to do that for sure. Um, I also think it has an interesting way of exploring different events, interpretation of events, um, and also something else, interestingly enough as well, as far as a narrative goes, is when you look at it from a character perspective, it can sometimes, I think, show how people will remember certain events differently, even if you were at an event and somebody else was at the event, but they have a completely different recollection of it than your viewpoint is, I think nonlinear storytelling can sometimes have that power to do that when it comes to our memories and explaining them uh, to an audience in film. So i I think it worked. I think it absolutely worked for this. But more so what I think really hit home for me on this is the the moral and existential questions that i had after watching this movie um i'm just gonna rattle off the questions that i came up with and and see if maybe you had some of the same if you did if you did have some of these same questions that i did let me know i mean seriously uh, send me a message over on instagram send me a message on threads do what you gotta do but let me know if you thought some of this stuff about this movie so first off big question did the bomb need to be dropped at all or even made for that matter I think that's a question that uh, Oppenheimer's certainly grappling with is that while he's very fascinated with the atomic technology he's also I think horrified and petrified by what it could do but yet his intellectual genius curiosity can't help himself but continuing onward to the next step of scientific evolution to create this weapon of mass destruction so, I don't know. You, you have to ask yourself after watching this, did it really even need to be made or worse yet used on the amount of humans that it was? And that's something I think that not just the scientific community, but just humanity as a whole, we have been struggling with that answer. I think ever since the terrible event happened, um, take that statement for what you will, but I think any loss of human life that exceeds the amount that was exceeded, during Hirose- uh excuse me, Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, if that doesn't give you some moral pause, uh well then you're not really a human <laughs> in my book. It's uh it's it's pretty heavy stuff. Also, also kind of puts another thing into mind as well, which is that you you know damn well that you are making something with the intent of killing humans. That's interesting to me. That's really, really interesting to me. And again, also ties back to that first question of, do you even need to do it at all? But then, would someone else have done it? It's a point that the movie makes, I think at one point, even in the trailer, they're like, the Nazis, you know, the Nazis could have this bomb. And if they had it, uh, they probably would have been a lot worse than certainly what America would have done with it. At least that's what history would like us to believe, so... Um, also asks you what this will do for future generations, introducing this kind of power. I can only imagine the mindset during world war II, seeing an energy, an energy form like this. And, you know, and having no idea what's going to happen. I mean, they, they famously say in the trailer and in the movie, like you're saying that there's a chance that by pressing that button to activate this, you, you could destroy the entire world. It was a possibility, and yet they hit the button. Um, I got to say, that moment in the theater, too, I had sweaty, sweaty palms. Really, really sweaty palms for that. Um, I would also also throw out some credit to the composer of this movie for that. Um, I'll get to him towards the end of the episode. But his score during that moment just kept me on on pins and needles. It just kept me on the edge of my seat waiting to see exactly how it was going to be captured on film. And even more shockingly than that is knowing that Chris Nolan was not using CGI to pull that off. That is, I mean, if that's not the definition of remarkable, I I guess I don't really know what is now outside of the moral questions. It also gets you into the existential side of things, which is definitely a side in life that, I probably like to spend a fair, a fair amount of time in it and maybe a little too much time. And you could argue that or philosophically, I, I think about things like this relatively often, not just in the scope of this movie, but this movie has you grappling with questions like asking yourself what the value of human life is, who is ultimately responsible for, you know, this event, who, who should be held accountable for this is the atomic bomb itself a device for good or is it for evil? Is there even such a thing as good or evil? You know, did Oppenheimer start humanity down a path of destruction by introducing this this terribly powerful gift into the world? Or, you know, you know, for that matter is the atomic bomb just a big massive mistake? or did it do what it set out to do? Did it actually create peace or did it just create a perpetual cold war that'll never end between rival nations that are all trying to compete for nuclear dominance? I don't have answers to those. I I, I wish I did. I wish I could tell you that I have answers to some of these really, really heavy questions, but they are questions that I was stirring with. I, I mean, I was really sitting around and thinking about it And it's really too bad that I don't have a guest on for this because I would love to bounce some of these questions off of somebody that feels, feels strongly opinionated, hopefully about the questions and also about the movie. Uh, so maybe, maybe I don't know down the line, I'll find a reason to come and revisit this podcast, uh, revisit this movie. Uh, we'll see, but, uh, yeah, some really, really heavy questions on there and, and and I wish I could have answers for you on that, but, but, but I don't. Now, I want to kind of break the rest of the movie down sort of piece by piece on this and kind of just get into some of the things that fascinated me about this, starting with just the man himself, starting with Oppenheimer. So one thing that struck me about Killian Murphy in this movie is that he portrayed Oppenheimer to be this genius that somehow was able to be sociable and, dare I say, charming, but also highly, highly arrogant and um arguably not even a good person too. I mean, he he's definitely a womanizer for sure. Uh they they make a point of showing this in the movie that he had, you know, at least one documented or well documented affair, but possibly others um that we don't even know about. Um I it's not not for me to be the judge, jury and executioner for that, but make of that what you will. Um but he undoubtedly was an incredible mind of that time and and lord knows if we had a mind like that today you know if he was around today i guess is what i'm trying to say is what what he would be like or what he would sort of be bringing to the table in discussion for this subject today uh, i suppose we can only imagine or just type into chat gpt what would j robert oppenheimer say about nuclear energy in 2023 sadly i bet somebody's actually done that um, and they could probably tell me but i, I i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole this is a human episode with me, a human, not AI. Okay. Um, But he's absolutely a genius. And thankfully the movie has a lot of physics talk in it, but it's certainly not any that even myself could not follow. Like you definitely do not have to be a physics expert to watch this though. I'm sure if you are, the movie's actually probably even more enjoyable for you or maybe more torturous for you because you're having to, you know, critically think that much when you're just trying to experience the emotion of a story. I don't know. Um, something that came to, something that came to my mind when I was thinking about how do I describe how my dumbass was watching the science in this movie, and this clip that I'm throwing in right here is a perfect encapsulation of basically how I would describe the science in this movie if. You were to ask me to really explain it. One particle of unitanium has a nuclear reaction with a flux capacitor, carry the two, changing its atomic isotoner into a radioactive spider. Fuck you, science! Yeah, I mean, look. Math was never my strong suit growing up, uh, let alone physics. I, I wasn't even smart enough to make it in the physics. You expect me to know about mathematical formulations, fundamental forces and particles, quantum mechanics and relativity, computational physics, particle physics, cosmology, black holes and astrophysics? <sighs> no. No, you've come to the wrong podcast. <laughs> I, 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 I'm I, not that guy. I am not that guy. Uh, but God bless the, the people out there that are capable of of doing that. But I also imagine it's got to be, it's got to be hell in a way, having that kind of a mind. I mean, apart from you, hopefully having human emotions about all the things that you're doing, you're just grappling with all this knowledge and, and you don't even do you, like, do you even know it's knowledge at the time? Really? I mean, I know you're like you, like a scientist must tell, like when they're on the verge of discovery or when they're getting closer towards something, but You know, there's a first for everything and there's also a first for an atomic bomb. And it's really hard to imagine what exactly that moral dilemma would be like. But again, I think this movie, this movie does it, it it captures that from a very human level and puts you definitely in the driver's seat of what it would be like to be inside of the mind of Oppenheimer and it's another thing I really appreciated about this movie too, is the movie is entirely from his perspective. You could argue that Lewis Strauss has a very strong perspective in this as well, particularly for the black and white moments, uh, for sure. They definitely show some other perspective, but it is definitely all told in my in my view, uh, from the eyes of Oppenheimer. And I think it's definitely important that it was done from that because certainly, the the no doubt war that was going on in his mind would have been the most compelling thing to tell I think from a audience standpoint as far as how to get behind or just or get inside of uh, of a character as interesting as this one so I, I I really think it it couldn't have been done another way. Um, another thing that was interesting about the man himself, Oppenheimer, is his patriotic allegiances or questionable allegiances, if you will. I like that the movie doesn't go out of its way to say, you know, is he a communist or isn't he? I would say it's softly defending that he's not. And I would also argue that a lot of history over the years would now go to say that the U S government certainly was unfair in its treatment towards Oppenheimer, especially post bomb. Um, But the movie is very smart about letting you kind of make your own assumption about that. And also understanding regardless of if it's right or not just exactly how trying and and difficult it would be to create one of the world's greatest innovations yet awful creations and to be asked by the government to do that only to have them come back and rip your butthole apart uh, for the very thing that they asked your help with um God knows what that would feel like, but it's not the first time that our government has done something that it should be ashamed of. And I feel like for this, our government definitely has some things that it probably could have certainly course corrected if it were to take a look at this again. But at the same time, too, you got to look at the time. You got to look at the time that this took place in and... I don't know if people knew any better in the 1950s. I mean, that's when his uh, security clearance hearings were, were happening. And it was just a completely different time back then. I mean, everything was thought about differently then. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't social media. There's no public influence on these things. Um, so much of it is political and quiet and hush-hush and covert and uh, just just different. Just completely different thought process to dealing with matters like this than I think would have happened today. So it's really anybody's guess right now um, what it would have turned out to be like, but you know, the movie does a pretty good job of depicting that. But before I get too into the hearings about it, got to talk about the bomb, right? The bomb. So the bomb itself, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see on the biggest screen possible. I, I wish I could have been one of the people that saw it on IMAX, but I just was not able to do it. It would have been pretty far out of my way. And at the time, I just, I didn't have the time to do it. Uh, I took my wife to go see the movie. (laughs) She actually fell asleep in the movie, if you can believe that. Uh, Not at the atomic bomb part. I think that was loud enough to wake her up. Uh, But there were definitely moments I was glancing over and saw that she was absolutely asleep. So it's okay that I'm admitting that out there. She would admit it if you, you know, put her in a room and just said, did you fall asleep during the movie? She would say yes. So here's the things that stood out to me about the moments with the bomb. one is just the massive scope of the project, building the essentially town, the whole like practical city of Los in Los Alamos. Um, very interesting. Government spent an exorbitant amount of money, uh, not only on the materials, but also on bringing out all the people's, uh, the all the scientists, all the families, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they spent a lot of money on that. The Trinity test moment I definitely think is a for sure highlight in the movie, though I'm glad that it wasn't like the end of the movie, that they didn't just build the whole thing up to that moment. It certainly is a pinnacle and very important moment in the movie, of course, Um, but it is not, I would say, actually the whole core of the movie. I think the core of the movie is Oppenheimer himself and what he went through as a character and his journey his life journey i mean that that is the movie of course the use of the bomb comes into play should it have been dropped should it have not been i think regardless of you know anyone's opinion on that even chris nolan's nobody's arguing that the bomb being dropped is horrible absolutely horrible and devastating and massively scarring on this planet um the movie, I think, was very clever in its usage of getting that point across. Uh, it doesn't do it too over the top. Um, it didn't do like a you know Terminator Two Skynet thing where it shows like people burning on the fence and exploding. It was much more subtle than that, but still very effective in its use of getting that point across. And I think the last thing that stood out to me about the bomb in the movie is is actually what. Einstein says towards the end of the movie. And I, and I, I think I pulled the quote here. I, I don't have the, the audio clip cause the movie, the movie hasn't come out yet. And I haven't seen anybody put the clip in. Otherwise I would have put it in. Um, but he says something towards the end of the movie that definitely stuck with me. And it's this, you know, this is way after the bombs been built and, and everything's gone down, but he says when they've punished you enough, They'll serve you salmon and potato salad, make speeches, give you a medal, pat you on the back and telling them and, and telling all is forgiven, but you just remember it won't be for you. It would be for them. That's heavy. That is heavy stuff. And also shows hypocrisy in the government and hypocrisy and power. I think for sure. Um, definitely, definitely interesting. Now, We talked about the man Oppenheimer. We talked about the bomb, but then we got to get into all the political innuendo and back and forth and the political backstabbing and politics of this whole thing. And that is the hearings, the, the hearings that are in this movie, Definitely take up a lot of the weight when it comes to the dialogue in the movie, but it is for good reason because there's a lot of implications that these hearings have, not just on Oppenheimer as a person, but I think it also shows the times that we were living in as a country and how paranoid uh, everybody was of of Russians and communism and um, you know internal takeovers of the government and things like that. Uh, a lot of a lot of communist fear for sure. Now, something else I find that's worth mentioning on this is just bringing up the word communist. I, I wonder if I may screen speakers if you know what a communist is or you you know, you, yeah, just asking, do you know what that is? Um, again, if somebody says the word Prometheus to me, I might give a you know a half ass definition of it, but could I really articulate it well what a communist is? Well, I'd like to do that right now, just in the off chance that somebody doesn't actually know what a communist is. So a communist or communism is a political and economic ideology that positions itself in opposition to liberal democracy and capitalism, advocating instead for a classless system in which the means of production are owned communally and private property is non-existent or severely curtailed. In modern political times, I would say the word socialism gets thrown around a lot more than the word communism, but I, I think they are similar. I'm no expert on the two, but I, I definitely think there's some give and take there. Now, the scare itself for communism and why it was so fearful by us is I think a lot of our politicians at the time were f- feeling threatened and thinking that it was going to be a global takeover of this ideology that's completely Polar opposite to what capitalism is all about, which is money, and it also threatened just our overall political and economic systems. That's what communism did, and so yeah, the government was pretty pretty spooked about it, and they, they definitely didn't like it. And so Oppenheimer became a target shortly after, um, you know, creating the atomic bomb and having it be used to end World War II. He eventually became a basically a scapegoat. And they, you know, stripped him away of his security clearance because of his his commie ties. Um, Communism is interesting, though, for sure. And I'm not going to let me just make this clear. I'm an American. (laughs) I feel like even if you still talk about communism a lot today, like someone's going to be like, oh, wait, is, is Jordan a commie? Is that what he is? No, no, I'm not a commie. But I am a person that did a little bit of research on it just so that I could try to better understand it myself. And in turn, put the knowledge out to you, my fine screen speaking audience. So communism, okay? Now I said it is talking about the abolition of private property. They do a lot with classless societies, centralized planning, whereas capitalism is much more focused on individual freedoms, democratic governance, money, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so definitely conflicting ideologies and certainly something that I wanted to do more research on after, after watching this movie. So now for Oppenheimer, why was communism getting thrown around with him so much? Like he, he's not a commie. So what, what's the deal? Well, uh, history would show this. And I definitely think the movie didn't shy away from this. He was certainly a communist sympathizer, or I, I think they would call him like a fellow traveler. I think that was like the term for him back then. Meaning that Oppenheimer was open in uh, in his past in expressing support, or at least uh, an academic understanding, or even a, a social understanding of what communism was standing for and and why uh, people were getting involved with it. He he certainly seemed to have left ween- uh left leaning uh, tendencies as far as his politics go, and so yeah, at the time he was uh, open about expressing his support and understanding of communism. I think he also, from a certain sense, understood some of the socialist policies that they were trying to do. He didn't really like all the elements of capitalism himself. And socially speaking, outside of the politics, I think he just happened to be friends uh, with people in his academic community that were in that world. And so he got involved with it, has an affair uh, with Gene uh, Jean, Jean Tatlock, I, I think is the the character and real life person's name in the movie played by Florence Pugh. Um, but yeah, no, the, the, the communist thing was certainly an interesting angle in the movie. I've, I've always heard about like the McCarthy hearings and, you know, people trying to, you know, blackmail people and get them on a list and, you know, try to out them as a commie and it being really, really scary. Um, I definitely think Oppenheimer certainly got the blunt end of that. And on a, in a very, in a very public way in hindsight, but not at the time because the hearings themselves were very hush-hush kind of behind closed doors. They they weren't really uh, open to the public at all. It was just entirely something that was recorded. Um, yeah, but, but Oppenheimer, I think, got a raw deal. I mean, you, you ask the guy to build a bomb. You pretty much know damn well at the time that he You know, he either is very close to being a commie or he is certainly at risk of becoming one, but yet you still hire him to build you this weapon because I guess nobody else has the mind that he has at the time. And yet then after the fact, you're going to go ahead and criticize him and strip away his credentials and his reputation in the process. I didn't, I didn't really feel good about that. And I think the movie's trying to get you to grapple with that for sure. I'm not saying that like, Oh, big, bad government is all shit. I I understand certainly why some of them had issues with, with Oppenheimer and his social, uh, his social acquaintances, but you know, just to take away, take away his livelihood and, uh, just take away again, his reputation and his legacy. Um, God only knows what that did to the man on top of all the other weight that he was having to juggle building, a weapon that murdered hundreds of thousands of people. <sighs> heavy, heavy stuff. Hey, um, by the way, I mentioned McCarthy, McCarthy era, and all that stuff. If just as a history lesson, quick, if anyone's wanting to know who Joseph McCarthy is, his real name is Joseph Raymond Joe McCarthy, and he was an American politician that served as a Republican U.S. Senator in the great state of Wisconsin. So. I'm not gonna do a whole bio reading on that. Perhaps somebody could play him in a movie. Doubt that would be taken in a good life uh, in a good light because I usually feel like when when someone says McCarthy, he's depicted as a villain, and then he wasn't really that well liked for basically telling you that you're a communist. Um, let's see, Oppenheimer himself—he was a person that pushed a lot for peace and, and conversation around the responsibility of nuclear weapons. Uh, moving after the events of Los Alamos and World War II. And some would argue, and the movie certainly makes this point, that the government was not a fan of him trying to suddenly grow a conscience, basically, uh, after building this bomb. But also, also worth noting, also worth noting, and I think the movie shows this too, I'm sure Oppenheimer was not clueless as to what the U.S. government wanted to do with the bomb. He I would assume he would be a fool if he didn't think it was going to get dropped somewhere. But do I think that he had full, full understanding of just what exactly it was going to do and how it was going to be used in what way? No, uh, I, I don't really think so. I think the government is the government on that. They compartmentalize stuff. They keep, they keep you in the know, as they say, like a need to know basis. They do that whole thing. Uh, so Oppenheimer certainly, I think was, was, was like that interesting things about the Oppenheimer hearings themselves. Apparently, you know, prior to the hearings happening, um, Lewis Strauss had an in for him, which the movie certainly shows that played terrifically by, by Robert Downey Jr. I might add very nice to see him get accolade and recognition for a role outside of Iron Man, something that he was super well known for, for like 10 plus years, Um, he's a hell of a good actor and he definitely is not playing typical Robert Downey Jr. fashion type. And I think he's excellent in the movie and probably could get at least a nod for best supporting actor, but we'll, we'll see come award season, assuming that the strike allows that to happen. So interesting things, uh, about the hearing J Edgar Hoover apparently was also on his shit list spent like eight years doing surveillance on him and build up of this hearing just to try to get his ass out. A lot of interesting stuff for the hearings. Uh, but I definitely think the movie encapsulates it. Well, um, I'm going to have to watch the movie again, just because it was very dense as far as all the back and forth. There's a a lot of dialogue, uh, a lot of characters, a lot of political nuance and things like that. So I definitely, I definitely need to go back and rewatch it in order to give you a better take on that. But Still, the hearing, the the stuff of the hearing actually I found was was very riveting and engaging. Almost more so than the atomic bomb going off itself. I was I was locked in hook and sinker, as they say, uh, for watching that. <clears throat> Another thing I got to talk about for this movie, everybody, is the the thousand yard stare that Killian Murphy gives in this movie. A uh, handful of different times. I feel like we've all been there at one point or another where you're just having a day like you are just not here you're you're not here on planet earth you are lost deep deep in in thought um whether it's thinking about your your own life or mistakes or regrets Or you're thinking about what could have been, you're theorizing about things, whatever the hell it is you're thinking about. I think many of us have known that feeling, but no one more powerfully so, I think, than Oppenheimer in this movie. Because when he gives the camera those stares where you're just like, damn, this man has lived through and seen some shit. I mean, we're talking distant, vacant, traumatized, stressful, emotionally scarring, deep, deep longing looks that the look says it all, you know, it, it doesn't need to, there doesn't need to be dialogue for those moments the his facial expressions and just the sheer horror that he's going through in this movie. I mean, it, it, it would make you just want to meet the real person, to be honest, just to just to get in the mind of somebody like that. I mean, I can only imagine like if he was alive and they were developing the movie while he was alive, like just what questions they would ask him. Would they ask him questions? Would he serve as a consultant? I, I don't know, but I, I do truly think that Killian Murphy deserves. He is certainly deserving of having a best actor nomination come award season. Um, He's always been a supporting player. For Christopher Nolan's movies, but in here, he not only carries the movie, but I'd also say that he's a scene stealer in several scenes and moments in this movie outside of the only other scene stealer in this, which I would argue is Robert Downey Jr. Um, But there's really so much terrific cast in this movie. I mean, Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, I mentioned Florence Pugh, Uh, Josh Hartnett's in there, uh, Dave Krumholtz, uh, Remy Malik's in there for like two seconds, uh, Alden Ehrenreich. Um, Oh my God, who else is in the movie? Gary Oldman shows up. uh, God, is he President Truman, I want to say? There's a lot, a lot of heavy hitters in this movie, and and everybody's pulling their weight and then some, but but I got to give it for Killian in that he... He kept me engaged from the moment he came on screen. I mean, I I bought into him being this character through and through. I've, of course, now since gone down the rabbit hole, as many other people have done so now and looked at real interviews of Oppenheimer and things like that. And the casting absolutely makes crystal clear sense to me. So I just had to comment on Killian Murphy's performance in this and just... I don't know, just just that thousand yard stare. Like I, I don't know what it is about that. And, and sometimes, in a weird way, like it can feel it can feel good sometimes to do that. Like not, maybe not maybe not intentionally so. But it's like, have you have you ever stared at a fire like in like the dead of winter if you're in the Midwest and you're just staring at it and there's nobody around you and you just sit there in silence and just purely are alone with your thoughts to think. The thousand-yard stare there is good, so and maybe that's not the right thing. I'm just you know drifting off, or I'm daydreaming or nightdreaming. I don't know. Maybe it's not like a thousand-yard PTSD stare, but there is something to be said about that, isn't there? Just sitting there quietly, contemplating. I can only imagine contemplating like Robert Oppenheimer because. I don't know, just really, really heavy questions with him. And I'm going to ask a really heavy one out there right now to you all, the screen speak audience. This just came to me. I, I didn't prepare this question at all. I'm just throwing it out there. Okay. Here we go. So I'm not God. I realize that I'm certainly not the devil either, but I have to imagine from a spiritual level I promise I'm not going to go too preachy. Okay. But from that level, I have to imagine he wondered like, am I going to go to heaven? Like for, for what he did. I mean, for what he directly had a hand in doing, which is creating the, the greatest means of mass human destruction known to earth. Um, I don't know. Again, I, I, I feel like I, I, I should throw out like a guess, my, my textbook guess for this is that it is still possible for him to go because I obviously don't think that he went into it with the sake of, Oh yeah, great. I'm going to create a bomb and have it murder a bajillion people. Like, no, he, he's not doing that. He is a scientist first and foremost, and he is furthering science for better or worse in one way or another. But you know, at the same time, what he is doing could be construed as, as evil because of its implications and just its direct intent. It's not like this is going to be used for anything else. Like you're not just going to invest all this money just to create a pretty light show out in the desert. No, you're probably going to drop it on some humans, but that's, that's probably like the biggest question I have myself when, when looking at this man's life is just what was, what does God do with somebody like that? you know, what do they do? Uh, I, I think the textbook answer on that, the the Bible, they, they would probably say something like, as long as he, you know, confesses his sins and, and asks for forgiveness and repentance that, that he gets in, I guess. Uh, but I don't know, you know, try, try, try telling that to the people in, you know, Nagasaki and Hiroshima that lost, lost people. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's the horrors and, and traumas of war is that there's these Sometimes unanswerable and unthinkable questions to ask, but uh this movie got me there. It, it certainly got me there. Got me thinking, too, how a person's legacy really defines them. You know, we're talking about Oppenheimer so many years later, I, I doubt he would think a movie was ever going to get made about him. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's not true. I mean, I, I'm sure he, you know, being on the cover of Time magazine and having the international notoriety... Uh, whether famous or infamous notoriety, I, I don't know if he would think that we would be still discussing him rather than the bomb, but you know, the legacy, you know, is it a good thing to be considered the father of the atomic bomb? Is it a bad thing? I don't know. Um, I certainly think our world is not what it is today without him. He is a very crucial person in human history and, I do think there's a lot of questions that his work is has done to the world. And we are still asking questions still to this day. And we still live under threat of of nuclear war in some cases. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's really much more to say about that. If you've seen this movie, a lot of these questions you've probably been wrestling with yourself. Maybe you have more insight to me. Um, you ha- may have more insight than I do at this point. I don't know. Last thing I'm going to say about this movie, and then I'm calling it quits on this thing is I got to give it to Lud- uh, Ludwig, uh, Goranson, I think is how you say his name. I have listened to his score for this movie. Now, I think at least in completion, like six or seven times, I, I keep listening to it during my day job. Um, been listening to it just off and on whenever I have time. There's something so haunting and beautiful about the music that he made for it. It reminds me of like a horror version, uh, a horror show version in a way of like a beautiful mind where like, it's kind of playing like this classical music that makes you fascinated about how people think. But then also has in large part, I think due to the, uh, due to the violin in the score this just prolonged, dragged-out sense of dread that's constantly building and building and building throughout the whole movie. And it coalesces, or excuse me, it it builds up in fine form all the way to the end of the movie, which I would say as far as endings of movies go, it's a near-perfect ending. Like, it leaves you... It leaves you with impact, is how I felt at the end of Oppenheimer. Like it didn't do like the Chris Nolan thing where like it's like spinning, you know, the what is it, the thing spinning in Inception and is it going to tip over or not because it's a dream or it's like a twist ending. No, like it it says pretty definitively what Oppenheimer thought about this, and it just kind of leaves the weight of what his science and work has done. And you're basically left to sit with it and think about it. And I don't know. I mean, it it was a fantastic ending. I I, I really got to watch this movie again. I mean, I almost wish I could do like a commentary, like a play by play on it because it's it's got a lot of stuff, got a lot of stuff that I wanted to cover on there. But that being said, I think I am going to wrap up this episode. So I'm going to call it quits right now on this. What did you think about Oppenheimer? Did you see it? Have you seen it? Um, Let me know what you do think about it. Send me a direct message. If this is a movie that's raising a bunch of existential or philosophical questions with you, let me know what you think about it uh, and whatever it is that you're listening to on right now. So just please, please let me know about that. Um, As always, appreciate each of you for coming by, giving this episode a listen, I appreciate your patience, and whenever I have you know lulls or delays in content, I try not to have there be too many, um, but again, I just I, I don't ever want to put out content that I feel is of disservice to you all, because I respect you all too much as the audience, so um, I'm going to keep doing my best, keep it coming, keep it coming, and yeah, that's all I got, so Appreciate each of you. Keep checking out more ScreenSpeak episodes down the road, and I'll catch you on the flip side. See ya.